Welcome. This is the Melinda Eitzen Show, and I'm Melinda. Today, we're so lucky to have with us Tom Daly. He's with Coons Fuller, and we're going to talk today. He's a lawyer like me, divorce lawyer. We're going to talk about common trial mistakes and how to avoid them. Welcome, Tom. Well, thank you, Melinda. It's a big pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Glad to be here. So we want to talk about mistakes trial lawyers make. Yes. Okay. Not that we've ever made any. I thought this was a lab class of mistakes I've made. <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, I've trained a lot of lawyers over the years, and I'm constantly telling them, okay, here's the mistake I made, so don't make that one. Make a new one. Right. <laughs> so we all make them. Well, you've probably trained more attorneys than you know, because I was thinking back about today's topic. I thought, well, some of the best training I got was standing in the courtroom or sitting in the courtroom watching seasoned attorneys <laughs> like yourself, you know, Rick Robertson, where I work now, uh, watching them like, oh, that's how they do it. Because they didn't tell us that in law school. A lot of it is learned by doing. Right. That's exactly right. So what's one? I know you're in trial a lot. We were just talking about you're running around the state. You're going to other states. Yeah. <laughs> what's a common mistake you see people make, whether you made the mistake or someone else? Well, I think that you start from the very beginning, and the and the biggest mistake I see is uh, it's going to relate to preparation. In fact, almost all of these relate to preparation. But the first biggest mistake is not having a clear, uh, having clearly set your client's expectations about what can be accomplished in a courtroom. Oh, I completely agree with that. So when the client first comes to us, we say, "What is your goal?" That's exactly right. What are we trying to do? Usually, my first question is. What brings you to a lawyer's office today? Oh, that's perfect. And they may say, well, I talked to your assistant and I gave them all the details. Like I, you did. And I read them all. <laughs> I'd like to hear them straight from you. So tell mm -hmm. me what we're here for today. Some things are available at the courthouse and some things are not. There are a lot of things that are, are not available. And amongst those are, we're not going to make the world a better place at the courthouse. So if you've got a counterparty, a spouse, uh, or, you know, or if it's a, if it's a child custody case, you got another parent who just isn't a great person, we're not going to fix that at the courthouse. They are still going to not be a great person. They're still not going to be a great person. So all we can really do there is put together frameworks for how to channel uh, sometimes what looks like bad behavior or, or make it uh, incentivize good behavior. Yes, you have to kind of change the approach and the lens. That's right. And we remember that our courts are also courts of equity. So sometimes we may have something, you know, black and white, that says a person has to give notice by 6 p.m. Well, it's 6.01. That's okay. <laughs> and the attorney needs to be able to tell the client that because what they're – usually clients aren't being petty when they want to fight about the 6.01 or the 6.02 notice. They've come from a relationship, a long history of a power dynamic mm -hmm. that, that we don't fix in the courthouse. And they're trying to play out repairing that power dynamic. You know, he or she – uh, just ran roughshod over me for 25 years, mm -hmm. and now they're two minutes late. The order says six. We're gonna we're gonna hold them to it, and it doesn't really work that way in court. We have good people not at their best. That's exactly right. The criminal guys always tell me I represent bad people on their best behavior, and we say, well, yeah, we represent wonderful people who are just having a really bad day. Yeah. So sometimes their judgment isn't great, and we need to help them. It's not great. We need to help them sometimes. Before they've ever come to see an attorney, they may have Googled, you know, uh, top 50 things to ask an attorney during a consultation. So they'll come in with 50 questions that you wonder where in the world did that come from? <laughs> or they may have Googled, you know, what to do if you're if the other if the other spouse uh, is hiding money, and they may get a web page from France, 
and it tells them some ideas you can do in France. It's like, <laughs> we, don't, we don't have all those mechanisms in Texas. <laughs> That's not a cause of action here. That's right. We have a lot of others. But so I think the first step is just getting the client prepared as to these are things that are, we, we use a, a tough word that I can't spell, justiciable, which means these are things we can take in front of a judge and, and get them to make a decision on. And these are things that we're going to have to wait for the mighty wheel of karma to fix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if a client was listening out there, I think they would want to be really clear with their lawyer and have the lawyer take the time to have that full conversation of, what am I expecting and what is the likely result? And is there a big difference between the likely result and what we're fighting about? Because I'd hate to have a client ever turn to me after a trial and say, why didn't you tell me? Right. Yeah, you and, don't want that. and that's true for like when we're talking settlement is sometimes they get fixated on what they want, but they're not comparing it to what can a court even do, right? Well, I think that's right. And also, not in, only in terms of setting their expectations, but I think also in terms of assuaging their fears. Because a lot of times people come in and their only experience in the court system may have been a traffic court situation, which really, you know, isn't court as we would think about it, uh, or TV. And so they come in thinking there's one outcome over here where he gets all the property and gets to see the children all the time and all I get is debt, I never see my kids again. Right. <laughs> and there's an equal and opposite outcome over here where I get all the property, the kids are with me all the time, he never sees the kids and he has to pay all the debt. And the fact is that most of the time, the range of possible outcomes is about here. Yes. And that's what we're working between. And so not only does that help set the client's ex expectations as that you're not gonna get something over here, but I think it can also help calm their fears. Don't worry about it. You're going to see your children the debts will be split equitably. Yes, yes, I completely agree. One thing that I see error-wise in the trial world is failure to prepare the client adequately. Right. And I hear that when people are shopping, like the one thing the client can control is who represents them. So sometimes we take work over, right? They're already partially down the road and they fire their lawyer and hire a new one. And what I hear is, the lawyer didn't prepare me. We showed up at the courthouse and that's when we spoke about what was about to happen. That's a huge mistake, don't you think? That's a huge mistake. I think that's a mistake on both parts. Um, if you've got, a, if, so you're the attorney, you've got to start talking to the client on day one, starting from that first phone call. Uh, here's, the, here's the kinds of things we're going to work on. But also from the client standpoint, if you've got a hearing coming up and you're four or five days out and nobody's talked to you about where you're going to sit, what questions are going to be asked of you, and uh, that sort of thing, that's a red flag. You may not be at a, at a firm that's, that's right for you. They may be right for a hundred other different kinds of clients, but they're not right for you. And they could certainly call the office and say, I want an appointment with my lawyer, you know, a few days ahead of this hearing. Can you please, assistant, put me on their schedule? Yeah, that's a real smart thing to do is to be proactive like that because there's a lot of good attorneys out there who may say, you know, if I can meet with a client the day before, we'll go over witness preparation, I'll show them the exhibits, we'll be fine. And that's probably true for that attorney. But if you're the kind of client, my wife, see, that would be me as the client. <laughs> You know, talk to me the day before. My wife is the client, and, and I'm, you know, I hope I'm not telling people secrets about representing her. But anyway, um, she would want that meeting 10 days out. Yeah. She needs to know. So she needs to know that you're ready, that she's ready. And so I think that's right. Have the client be proactive. Call up and say, I know we got a hearing coming up. I'd like to come in 
and practice? I like in my personal practice to do the 10 day out meeting and do the meeting the day before. So I look ahead because in the 10 day meeting, if something, if I have an aha, oh, that's wrong, or I missed something, I need a whole nother exhibit, I still have time to fix that without it being, I'm not a stay up late the night before person. So the day before is a little late for that. But I like to also meet the day before because I want the client to be fresh with the practice, you know, and if we practice 10 days ahead and then they have a little time to go home and think about it and practice at home maybe, and then we practice again. And when we're talking about prepping the client, we're not talking about telling them to lie, right? Oh, no, not at all. We're trying to find a way to get their story out in a way that's understandable, credible, believable, and supported by evidence. And brief. And brief. That's exactly we, right. We are under time constraints at the courthouse. We're under severe time constraints at the, at the courthouse. I, I do a lot of my cases in Collin County, Texas. And when you're in there for a temporary orders hearing, which can be very important hearings, everybody's got 20 minutes to tell their side of the case, which really means you've got 10 minutes to tell your side of the story and 10 minutes to stir up their side of the story. So talk about brief. You've got to be on top of it. And I think you're right. Clients would, would, are served well to come in and practice. You know, we're going to ask you a question about who's been a primary caretaker for the mm -hmm. children at a temporary orders hearing. Well, we don't need to hear, you know, she's never done this. He's never done. Let's just go down. We're going to ask you five sub questions. That'll be enough for the judge. We know the judge and then we'll move on. So that's right. That, that early practice gets them ready for that. And the second practice I think is good for exact, you know, just showing them exhibits. So I'm going to show you this. See, it's marked as F3. So they're not at, at the hearing going, huh? That's exactly right. And I'll say the, 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 what this exhibit is, is written up at the top. So when I ask you, what is this exhibit? All you have to do is read it. This is my financial information statement. So yeah, I think that's, that last practice is really good for that. I like what you said about preparation. I mean, that's the name of the game for everything. And we have deadlines as lawyers. We have to do certain things so many days before trial, 30 days before trial, 90 days before trial, 120 days before trial. If we haven't thought about the theory of our case or gotten enough information from our client, how do you properly hit those deadlines? Well, that's a very good point. That's a, that's a great thing for clients to be thinking through is uh, when we take a case, you know, we have these initial disclosures. And I know the rule's changing on that here in the next few months uh, for new cases, but the, the rule we have now is that within a pretty short period of time, we have to send out some basic documents. So as soon as we sign a new client up, we start having them gather those initial disclosures. And it, I know to a subset of clients, it looks like tedious homework. You know, she has access to the same bank statements I do. I'm <laughs> they like, all I, say that. I know, but we got this case and it says we got to produce them anyway. <laughs> so we start with that. So, you know, for your lawyer to be prepared, you've got to help them be prepared. So when the paralegal mm -hmm. calls up and says, hey, I need all the bank statements for the last two years, all the retirements for the last two years, get on it. Just go start downloading it and just make sure your lawyer has no excuses not to have that, that ready to roll. It costs more money for the client ultimately to not do their homework. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, in that initial consultation, say everything that's on your mind about what you think your claims are. Because you were talking about uh, pre-trial deadlines. Well, you know, if a client comes to you 30 days before trial and says, you know, uh, just the year before we got married, uh, my mom gave me $50,000. Like, oh, we're going to need an expert to trace that. But the deadline for that was 90 days ago. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know what we're going to do about that. So, yeah, make sure you get all of it up front so your lawyer knows what issues are out there so they can be prepared. Yes. 
okay, what's another mistake you see maybe uh, in the courtroom, other lawyers, yourself? <laughs> well, I think that um, a, a mistake I see uh, both attorneys and, and witnesses make is they want to get into arguments uh, on the witness stand. They want to they win the testimony, so to speak. <laughs> you know, I ask you, uh, it's, it's absolutely true that, that you had a positive drug test six months ago, right? So I say, so Ms. Seitzen, isn't it true that you had a positive drug test six months ago? All you have to do is say is yes. Because then your attorney's going to come along and clean it up and let you explain mm -hmm. it under friendly fire. But no, the witness like, well, yeah, I, you know, I, uh, I smoked the marijuana she gave me that her brother <laughs> sold us Objection using my credit responsive. card. <laughs> right. And you hope the judge objects because that'll shut it down. Uh... But uh, yeah, that's that's one mistake is trying to win the testimony. It's very frustrating to everyone, right? Because there's rules about how we testify and how we have to answer questions. And when the witness isn't aware of that and they start arguing or trying to explain everything, then the judge gets frustrated, the other attorney gets frustrated, and it gets in the way of putting on the case in 20 minutes. <laughs> that's right. It gets in the way of that. Of course... Uh, another mistake I see in trial, because there it's a it's a slower pace, mm -hmm. we have more time, we may mm -hmm. still be under a time constraint, but it'll be a more generous time constraint mm -hmm. that we might have negotiated with the judge beforehand, uh, and, and that is um, the attorney trying to get to the finish line too quickly on a point. Say, for example, you know, is he a reliable father? Well... You know, people ask that all the time. And they get away with that question. But the judge is like, well, that's just a yes or no on, on a very subjective question. The good attorney is going to start asking the foundational questions. Uh, have you ever seen uh, the father uh, go to school, uh, pick up the kids from school, attend an ARD meeting, uh, work on homework? So, and it goes on both sides, whether you're going to criticize a parent or be there in support of them. We see the mom, uh, the grandma who wants to show up and say, my, my, my daughter's the best mom ever. The kids are the number one things in her life. She runs her whole life around those kids. If that's 100% of their testimony, I don't even cross-examine them. It's a global statement that has no meaning. It has no meaning at all. And judges have all been trained. Those are conclusory statements of no evidentiary value whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So if that's your client up there or your witness up there, you want to ask him, well, what have you seen mom do with the kids mm -hmm. but specifically makes you think that she wraps her life around those kids because it's probably true but you just want to get enough facts out there so the judge can go oh i yes i agree yeah who takes off work every time they need to go to the doctor right and takes them to the doctors those types of specific facts those kinds of foundational questions that's exactly right um another mistake i see and this is more for the attorneys than the clients mm -hmm. is uh, not being able to get evidence admitted oh my goodness and when I watch young lawyers, I I just want to stand up. I'm like waiting my turn. It's not even my law firm. <laughs> I just want to run up there and help them. <laughs> right. I've had that inclination too because, and, and you know what, we, that is the one thing I think even the most seasoned trial attorney will stay awake at night wondering is I've got this funky statement and I don't have a business records affidavit. I don't have a heck of a lot of a sponsoring witness. How am I going to get this admitted? Like it's, it's We're always thinking about it. Well, the way I do it so that I'm not going to be nervous about it is, you know, the, the uh, Texas Bar or, or one of those groups publishes a predicates manual. I've got it. It's a blue book. It's overly filled. It's a, a three-ring binder. Mm -hmm. Bef before every piece of evidence, I have that sheet photocopied and put in my evidence binder. Because you need to know uh, 
we call it the predicate, which is our way we prove that this is what we say it is. Uh, you need to know that predicate backwards and forwards. And by that, I mean, I need to know, for example, a photograph. Okay, we all know, hopefully we all know, the predicate for a photograph is actually pretty simple. Uh, do you recognize the scene? Is this what it looked like at the time that you're, that you're describing it? Yes, that should be enough for a... So you need to know that. But the, so that's forward. But you need to know it backwards because sometimes opposing counsel will say, objection, inadequate predicate. You're like, oh, here goes. Like, uh, they didn't say what kind of camera was used or what the f-stop was on the lens at the time. And you need to have, if you have that predicate manual, it tells you right there the case law and it'll have the case saying, these are all you need for a photograph. So if you have that in front of every exhibit, mm -hmm. again, it's one more way to sleep easy at night. This is my advice to the young lawyers. Don't just have one way to get it in. So I have many times in front of judges had what I thought was the best argument. Maybe it's an exception to hearsay. And I think it should be this exception. And the judge says no. And then I say three more, and they like one of them. Right. So sometimes the judge sees it different than us. So I say never surrender. Just keep throwing out other ways <laughs> to get it in until, you know, you can't think of it anymore. But don't just go to one and stop. And judges even try sometimes to give people a hint. They'll say, well, on that objection. Right, right. <laughs> I'll sustain that one. That's right. I think that's really good advice, the, the never surrender advice. And it goes not only for exhibits you're trying to get in, but testimony. If you ask, uh, if, I, if I'm asking uh, a mom, what it, what's the inside of dad's apartment look like? Well, they're going to immediately object to lack mm -hmm. of personal knowledge. Mm -hmm. Well, that's probably a good objection. Mm -hmm. So we do the foundational things. Do you know where he lives? Have you been there? When was the last time you were in there? What did you see with your own eyes and hear with your own ears? I heard a very good trial attorney say that to his witness over and over again. What did you see with your own eyes and hear with your own ears? And I thought, you know what? That is very powerful. I'm limiting the scope of what I'm asking you to. What did you see? Mm -hmm. So then when I've asked you all that, I say, so do you think that apartment is a safe place for a child? Now it's no longer objectionable. You've got some foundation mm -hmm. for expressing your opinion. And it's not a bad thing to start out with the, the easy way right. and see if you draw the objection. Because <laughs> so, the, the other way takes <laughs> a lot of time. That's true. And that's, uh, that, I see that commonly in court. And I wouldn't even call that a mistake. I don't like having objections sustained against me. It just, I don't know. It's like, the, it's like the, one of the ways I keep score. And it's probably not, that's probably a symptom for the mental health care professionals <laughs> out there. But, but that's one of the ways I keep score. And, so I'll, and also, I, before I did law, I was uh, in the software development world. So our whole life is predicate, if you will, you know, yeah. writing the code. So I'm usually going to go uh, foundation into the question before I get there. But you're right also on an exhibit. If I got an exhibit, I'm like, I'm not sure how I'm going to get this in. Well, I may try it with the opposing party first and ask them if they recognize it. Because you'll be shocked. I think you'll be shocked. I was shocked when I first started practicing how honest people are on the witness stand. Many, many will give you some truth. They may fib about some things, but right. they'll give you some things you didn't expect. That's right. Uh, oh, yeah. They could all get up there and just say, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> Thank goodness they that don't. could be a bank statement, but I don't know if she didn't Photoshop it to change the numbers. Yes. They could say that. But usually say, no, that looks like our Chase bank statement. Yeah. Like, oh, thank goodness. Well, that's been authenticated by the opposing party. <laughs> Move to admit. Hooray. In it goes. One thing I see people do, lawyers do, that I think is a mistake, and they lose credibility with the judge. And that's super important, is for the judge to think that what I'm saying, at least I believe is true, is important, is to over-represent in their opening statement 
what the evidence is going to show. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they, I think it makes judges and juries mad if you say, oh, wait till you see this, da-da-da-da-da, and then the evidence doesn't show that. And, and opening statement doesn't have any evidentiary value anyway. Right. So it's a mistake that I see people make just because they want to be dramatic, maybe? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I think, you know, just my real-world analogy to that is every once in a while, I've seen a movie trailer. And it, maybe it's a really funny movie. Maybe it's going to be an adventure movie. And I see some scenes like, oh, that's going to be an amazing thing. And I go see a movie. And that scene's not in there. They cut the trailer and cut the movie from two different sets of cloth, I suppose. I don't know how that happens. And I'm like, I was expecting the car blow up scene. Yes, or it, it really misrepresents. Right. Like it looks like a comedy on the trailer and it's really a drama and you're crying. Or the only three funny things that are in the movie that was were it. in the trailer. The rest <laughs> of it was terrible, right? So you're exactly right. You know, we've all been told since high school, I think, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them. Well, then tell them what you're going to tell them. That's your opening statement. Don't wave opening. But as you say, don't oversell it. That's your chance to say, and I, I often open with this, uh, I say, Your Honor, this is an easy case. There's really only two things we have to decide today. Now, beneath Roman numeral one and two, there's 85 different letters, <laughs> right? We're going to get into the nuts and bolts of that. But I want to get in the mind frame. This is the only things we really have to have before the court. So that sets me up for my objections on relevance. And the second thing is, I've clued the judge in. You're going to hear a lot of stuff today. Our side may... Uh, present some stuff that's not terribly germane. We think it is, uh, but maybe it's not. The other side is almost definitely going to spend a lot of time. And what I need you to be listening for is this. And that you're right, in your opening statement, don't oversell. But it is a chance to tell the judge, here's what you're going to hear, or the jury. We don't do a lot of stuff in front of juries, but e even the jury too. I love what you said, never waive your opening statement. Now, to people watching, they may not know what we're talking about, but especially in these quick hearings we're talking about, some people will say, I'm not going to have an opening statement. They have a right to, and they choose not to. And I think that is a huge rookie move, huge mistake. Even if I just take two sentences, right. I can alert the court to what are we doing here? Right. And why is it important? And why should I get my way? Right. That's exactly. And I've waved more openings than I than I should openly admit in public. <laughs> because it, it is a rookie move, but it seems sometimes it's smart. You've got a, a simple set of issues. You're in front of a judge who's in a hurry. You know, we're we're uh we serve hundreds of clients. They serve ten thousand a year. Yes. You know, literally serve two or three thousand a year. Yes. Are gonna be through that courtroom. So they're not as invested in the case as we are. So you feel like, oh let me be respectful of the judge's time. I'll waive that. Or I've only got twenty minutes. I don't want to spend five minutes on opening. You're right. You don't want to spend five minutes on opening at a 20-minute hearing. Mm -hmm. But just those two sentences, I think, is enough just to set the stage and say, here's what we want you to listen for because here's the two decisions we're going to ask you to make. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a big difference. And when you hear judges talk, they're like, tell me what you want. Like, why are you here? They don't know what to listen for. Right. If they don't know what decision am I being asked to make. And, you know, more than zero times, I'm sure you've heard the judge say that. I, I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> I remember uh, a, a judge who's now retired now. He was a fantastic trial judge in Collin County. But I happened to be in his courtroom on the first day that he took a job as a district judge. He'd oh. been a county court law judge. And it was a, it was a civil case. You know, in the family law cases, we, 
if we have three sides of that case, it's it's a confusing case. It is. But we got, we got two sides. <laughs> so his and hers usually, you know. Uh, so the two spouses or the two parents. But this is a civil case. And I, as far as I know, it was some sort of an insurance deal. I don't know. I don't practice that area of law. There were eight attorneys in front of him. Wow. All representing different interests in this in this case. And so they just start talking. And I remember sitting there back in the pews thinking, I don't have the first idea what they want him to do today. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I don't think he knew either. But, he, you know, he doesn't get to sit there and just shake his head. He's really listening, trying to discern. You think, well, if you just clued him in. Your Honor, today we want you to uh, award my client a judgment of $10,000 uh, for these reasons. And then that's enough. Now he's, okay, now I'm going to listen for all the reasons your client should get $10,000 and all the reasons that your client should not get $10,000. But at least I know what to listen for. On that same path, my favorite exhibit is a requesting list. Yes. It is literally just a list of things we're asking the judge to do that day. It is so simple. And what's great about it, besides the judge now has a list of what you want, they will, can write on it. That's right. Sometimes they make that their ruling. They, That's right. They alter it and make it their ruling. But what's also great about it is you can send it to your client in advance. And Absolutely. make sure your client's on the same page. <laughs> that's exactly, and that's one. Of, that's where we start is requested. We call it requested relief in my office. So that's that's what we're asking the judge to do for us, and that's the first thing we negotiate with the client. You know, they'll say, "Well, I want uh, dad to have to move to Canada." I'm like, all right, well, we, we can't do that. There's no constitution. So we start that negotiation with the client right yes. away. Yes. But once we have that down, you're exactly right. And how many CLEs have you been to where the judges, at least one judge, speaks and says? please give me requested relief. And not everybody's got the memo yet. So it's almost like a superpower if you take that advice and do it. Yes. And it's not difficult. You need to know yourself. You need to know yourself. <laughs> well, so uh, I, I kid around. I say that I learned what I learned about uh, uh, preparing for trial from Charles Manson. And that's, you know, uh, Vincent Bugliosi wrote the book, Helter Skelter. And he, a uh, very famous DA out in Los Angeles, and the book, of course, he's the superhero. And he, but he talked about how when he's preparing for a jury trial in a major criminal case, he starts with his closing argument. And then it would go back looking for evidence to support that closing argument. Now, you might, that might scare you with somebody doing criminal prosecution that way. But the same sort of thing. We're gonna, our closing argument is going to be a mirror of or some reflection of this requested relief. So if we start with that, now you can say, well... I want dad to continue to live in the marital residence. Well, why? Mm -hmm. So you put your little bullets. Here's mm -hmm. why. And are, do I have any exhibits that would uh, tend to, to support that notion? And you're exactly right. You start with that request of relief. Hand, typographically, mine will even say uh, dad's request of relief. And then on the next line for temporary orders, for example. Because very often the judge will scribble out dad's requested relief, leave temporary orders up here. Mm-hmm. Check off, denied, admitted, you know, whatever, agreed, and then sign it. And that's your order. And now you know what you meant when you wrote it. And the judge has handed you uh, exactly what you've asked in the form you've asked for. Now, they may not, they may not uh, grant everything you've asked mm -hmm. for, but at least they, they reclude in, listen for this, and then you've organized your evidence so they can go point by point. Yeah, I've heard evidence on that. I've heard evidence on that. They can't give you what you didn't prove up. Right on. Okay, that leads us to another mistake that could be a young lawyer mistake is not making or asking the judge to admit your evidence, allowing the judge 
to just skate on that. And they go to judge school and they, I think they might teach them in judge school. If you don't have to admit it, you're going to have less risk on appeal. Right. So it's our job, the lawyer's job to actually make sure I have a little checklist that it came in or it didn't make sure we say, judge, I offer exhibit one into evidence and make the judge say, Admitted or denied. Sometimes there's a little argument and they still don't admit it. Right. Or deny it. Right. And I think they're doing that on purpose. They might be. Uh, <laughs> you're right. Because it does. <laughs> the fewer decisions the judge has to make, the fewer things you can complain about. Mm -hmm. So if they're not being asked to make an admit or, or not admit decision, then that's one less mistake they can be complained about. And you're right. On a simple exhibit, I've got a photograph. I'm like, Miss Heitzen, you recognize this, blah, blah, blah. And you say, yes, I'm moved to admit. Easy. But if I show it to you and opposing counsel just starts having a fit about it, we may get all invested in resolving that fit. And then finally, uh, like, whew, moving on. Like, so you're right. You have to have the checklist. If you go to court by yourself, you have to have the checklist. But if you bring a paralegal with you or another attorney with you, you, they can help you. And I've had, you know, I just tried a, a big case a few weeks ago, and I had an attorney, uh, an associate, whisper in my ear, you didn't move to admit uh, mm -hmm. husband's number 32. I'm like, you're right. I'll do that now. Yeah. that it's. I love having a second person there. That's always part of their job is right. to make sure, did I offer it? Did I offer it? Did I offer it? Because we're thinking about the next question we're asking, right. right? So sometimes, but that's important. Right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Well, I've had so many occasions where that other person with me was just critical to getting things done, right? I had a trial where I, I put... Grandma was my witness. She was on the witness stand, gave her a photograph of the kid to look at. And I was looking down at my notes, remember where I was going to go next. Well, what I didn't realize is that Grandma started sobbing when she saw the picture of her grandchild. And uh, me, you know, I, I, you know, I was disconnected from that. I shouldn't have been, but I was. Uh, the paralegal whispered over my ear. She's like, oh, Miss So-and-so is crying. I looked up. I said, oh, Your Honor, may we have five minutes? And, of course, the judge was like, yes. He's like, I thought you would never ask. So you have that person doing that or... Uh, recently I was in a jury trial and I was going over a custody evaluation and you know, those things can be dense mm -hmm. and it was a jury trial. So I want them to think this is a major report because it was, it concluded the way we wanted it to conclude. <laughs> so I want to think this is a serious report. So I'm going through it, uh, headline by headline. And, uh, I had somebody with me who was neither, uh, it was a paralegal in training, but even an attorney or a, or a full-time paralegal, but she's a very intuitive person. And we took a break. She goes, Every time you say, let's move to the next headline, everybody in that bench dies a little. I'm like, all righty, I'm going to move on. Reading the room. Reading the room. That comes with experience. It would be hard as a brand new lawyer to read the room, but the jury or the judge and being able to adjust. I mean, we've talked about preparation, preparation, but you can't allow your preparation to be in stone no matter what. If the judge says something like, blah, 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 I'm never doing that, or I'm always doing that, or I don't want to hear about that, you cannot have your next question be, we're going to hear about that some more. You know, you've got to, now I, I should, I should give a caveat. Sometimes it doesn't matter what the judge wants because we're, we need to make a record for appeal. Right. But that aside, we need to read the room and adjust so that we can get the result we want. That's right. You know, I remember 
I wish I had talked to you, had this conversation before my very first ever contested <laughs> trial in Denton County in front of a, a, a great judge who's now retired. Uh, but he, he knew what he wanted to do. And, and, and uh, I was, I, so I had my outline typed, and I'm still an advocate of typed outlines. Me too. But I had it Me all too. typed up. And my, my headline was, the children need to stay in the marital residence. Okay, and then I had 96 reasons why that was true. And he said at the beginning of the trial, the kids are staying in the marital residence. The question is, which parent is staying in there with them? So I said, okay. And then I go into all my reasons. The kid, and he said, counsel, I said. I'm like, lesson learned. Yes. So we have to be flexible. It's a definitely a quick thinking job. We have to be flexible, quick thinking. And some of that you're born with probably. It's your natural way. But some of it comes from practice. A lot of it comes from practice. You mm -hmm. see uh, attorneys who... Uh, who've been practicing 20, 30 years, and they just, they've just, a lot of them just developed some reflexes. Mm -hmm. that like It's like a professional athlete. You see a ball coming toward their head. <laughs> That's how I get black eyes. A professional athlete like catches the ball. The same thing with the experienced attorneys. Uh, they see something coming, and maybe the less experienced attorney either doesn't see it coming or doesn't know how to respond, so they ignore it with their deer in the headlights looks. And the experienced attorney goes, and since you said that, and off they go. So you're exactly right about that. So tell us a little bit about your practice and what all it encompasses. So I practice exclusively in the area of family law. So what does that entail? Primarily, that's, that's divorce cases, uh, original child custody cases. And we say original, it means two people had a child together and they need to set up some rules how they're going to raise a child together. But also we do modifications. So they've made these rules and things have changed. Uh, maybe one person was working uh, at a nine-to-five job when the order was written, and now they've gone to uh, firefighter school, and now they're a firefighter. Well, they're, so no one's gotten better or worse as a parent, but facts have changed materially. And so we do those modifications. Then, of course, enforcement. Somebody doesn't follow the rules, uh, and, and it needs to be enforced. We, we do that, too, and enforcement can take a lot of different forms. But that's really what it is, divorce, custody, modification, enforcement. And you do that all full-time. Full-time, <laughs> however many hours a week people will pay me to do that. Yeah. Well, um, I have to tell our audience, I have seen Tom in action, and he's excellent. He's with the Farm Coons Fuller. They're very well regarded. So if you have any need, Tom could certainly should certainly be on your list of people to consider. We will put Tom's contact information on the screen so you can find him. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a thrill. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're very welcome. And now for our tip for the day. How do you know if you have a good lawyer? The good news is if you decide you don't, you can change lawyers. But things to think about. Are they returning your calls timely? Are they setting up a time to prepare you before your hearing or your mediation? Do they primarily practice family law and or whatever area of law your case is in? If they have too long of a list on their website of things they do for a living, they may not have the knowledge they need to do the best job for you. If you're seeing signs that they really just don't have the time to give attention to your lawsuit, you're one client to them, but this is your whole suit. This is the most important thing going on for you right at that time. 
if you have your gut tells you this isn't a good match then I recommend you consider shopping around and get a second opinion and then decide if you need to change lawyers and that is the tip of the day